0: apricot wensleydale had breasts like two bowling balls they were stuffed in a mammoth brassiere and covered by a billowy floral blouse with a drawstring neck and they bobbed up and down as she scrubbed the pots and pans stacked high in her vintage porcelain sink she did dishes folded laundry and arranged and rearranged the menagerie of knickknacks that covered every surface in her apartment. She watched television, ran hot baths, and hoarded Fannie Mae. She scowled at the mailman, who invariably folded her magazines with a hard crease down the center that made flipping through the pages gracefully virtually impossible. She was a mother, a grandmother, and a widow, and in this late autumn of her 72nd year, she was unequivocally sure of two things. First Floor hadn't cleaned their dog's poop out of the backyard in at least two weeks, and the only way to get her three grown children off her back was to fake her own death. She had loved them in all of the usual ways, had watched them grow increasingly unlike her, and had wondered how it was that she now found herself a woman unconditionally referred to as ma." It had been enduring the first time her youngest grandchild had said it, out of necessity and genuine desire, it seemed, to see her. Coming from her adult children and their collection of overexcited spouses, however, this she could do without. As her days grew shorter, and particularly after the death of her ornery but beloved husband, she saw less and less the point of humoring them. At least when Walter was alive, there had been someone to complain to. After a Sunday dinner like the one she had just hosted, there would have been a limitless supply of comments, moments, and outfits over which to remark. Walter Jr.'s third helping of ham or his wife Trina's halter top, Joseph's new perm, Abigail's refusal to say grace. Now she was left alone to clean up and wonder silently how her daughter could have converted to Judaism for someone named Noah, how a man that had come from her womb could be voting Libertarian this year. Apricot flicked an ant off the counter, dried her hands on her apron, and rifled through a junk drawer for a pack of hidden cigarettes. She was certainly old enough and had been purposely verbal about her angina this year, so it would come as no surprise if she were to, for instance, pass peacefully in her sleep, whisked away by paramedics before her family had a chance to see her lifeless body. She was fairly sure that Frank Strasshausen from her late husband's hospital nursing home would help her on the administrative end, perhaps in return for a 30-day train pass or a peek at one of her still-robust bosoms, the old pervert. The issue of inheritance, however, remained a problem. She knew at least one of her children, probably Walter Jr., that bastard, would make a stink. After some contemplation and brief consultation of her horoscope, she considered that perhaps it made sense to simply be honest with them. Walter Wensleydale's ancestor had purportedly come to Chicago with the Juliet and Marquette expedition. Sometime after that, his great-grandson's great-grandson's great-grandson rented a tenement to Joseph Bobo, and the son and daughter of these two men respectively were aligned in the midst of one of their parents' card games sometime in the late 1940s. Luckily, Walter had been handsome and apricot-toothsome. Their parents had hardly anticipated that they would sleep together on their very first date in the back of Mr. Wensleydale's Chevy Bel Air on top of brand new two-tone leather seats. Lucille Bobo, Apricot's mother, had not warned her about the consequences of such a careless though gratifying course of action, and five weeks later she and Walter were engaged to be married. Happily, Walter Jr. was a small baby and had been barely noticeable under a crinoline. Despite the fortuitous nature of it all, Walter had been a good husband, and Apricot simply wanted to wait to join him in peace. She settled down for a repeat of Sanford and Son with a lucky strike in one hand and a big ballpoint and a pack of stationery in the other. Dear children, she began, though I love you all and believe me I really truly do, even though I went from a carefree teenager to a pregnant newlywed in less time than it would have previously taken me to pick out a container of rouge at Foley's, I never felt sorry about it for a moment. The years I spent raising you, and don't let those horrid stories your father told you make you doubt this, were the best of my life. Nothing makes me prouder than seeing you and the grandchildren gathered around my dining room table, sharing the joy of family and shoving huge, indigestible bites of meat that you cannot possibly even be tasting, for Christ's sake, food that I lovingly prepared, mind you, into your ungrateful, thankless potty mouths. Apricot crumbled the paper and began again. Dear children, Her apartment ran the length and width of the structure and was the largest one in the building. It was meticulously organized though it had the outward appearance of being colossally cluttered it was decorated in classic old lady style tin tv trays with lace doilies on them an odd anthology of collector's plates without discernible theme or even consistent taste mismatched porcelain figurines living in harmony with a herd of miniature crystal elephants forever in ropes of the serengeti there were a few curiously fantastic items like her mother's Art Nouveau dressing table with its flawless beveled mirror and the antique Bird of Paradise rug seemingly stolen off her back porch while airing out, which she had noticed Joseph's wife Maria eyeing with lust over hefty bites of turkey and gravy. She was the only lot of them with any taste, which is why Apricot had willed the items to Trina, who had most likely use them as a TV stand and bath mat respectively. Apricot paused to consider a briefly bare chested Lamont on her 27-inch RCA and continued. Though I love you very much, your mother is a very, very old woman. I do not have the energy that I once had. Sometimes, when you bring my countless beloved grandchildren over, what is it now, seven, eight of them, and leave them screeching and running around like a sick pack of wild, hateful bastard monkeys? No, that certainly would not do. She took the last puff of her cigarette and extinguished the butt and a bit of spit in her palm. She thought about her own parents, who had died in their fifties. That had worked out pretty well, she figured. Her father had gone first from a heart attack, her mother a year later from what they then called a broken heart but what is now more commonly known as cancer. Apricot had been sad, of course, but remembered also the feeling of great freedom that a cycle had been completed, that it was now somehow officially her turn. If her own offspring noticed that she had now lived a full 22 years past the ideal age for a parent of grown children, they did not let on. They seemed to delight in utilizing her babysitting services, her Sunday dinner preparation skills, her inability to initiate the end of a phone call conversation. She wondered if, had her parents lived into their seventies, they would have felt equally drained by her company. Apricot had once watched a program on public television about tribesmen who abandoned their elderly, starving or beating them to death like ancient, unwanted babies when their bodies began to fail. The leathered face of an Eskimo woman set out alone to sea, and the waiting arms of the elements had seemed strangely at peace. Perhaps apricot could get special dispensation and be set adrift in the keys. Did the Eskimo elders ever tie their grown children in bundles and send them floating off to have their eyes pecked out by gulls and their skin dried into prunes by the sun for dropping by unannounced with a basket of dirty laundry and three filthy children in tow? Dear children, it certainly pains me to say so, but I would very much appreciate fewer unannounced drop-in visits, particularly before the noon hour on the weekends. It's true, an old woman like myself has not much more than her family to live for or look forward to, but God forbid you consider, even for a second, that I may have plans of my own. God damn it, you selfish little shits. And after a thoughtful moment, she added, love me, ma. Apricot crumbled the sheet and set it down with the others that littered the couch. On television, Lamont had consulted an astrologist and determined that his goal in life was to get along with his father at all costs. Fred, however, having accidentally eaten a helping of eight-day-old greens, was testing their relationship with vocalized fears of his impending death. Apricot chuckled and choked on a bit of smoke, that she had not yet exhaled. The choke turned into hacking, and she clutched her heart, which was suddenly full and uncomfortable. She was quite sure she felt a sharp pain spread through her shoulders and up her neck. There was a heavy weight on her chest, and then she felt her head go light as a feather as she fell from the couch with a flat thud. Apricot lay on the hard floor without even having had the good fortune of landing on a rug. From this vantage, she had a clear view between the curved wooden legs of her couch, two G.I. Joes, four bobby pins, several dust bunnies, and one improperly discarded teabag. She heard Fred and Lamont bickering and wished MacGyver was on instead. She looked up and saw the three crumpled letters perched upon the couch cushions peering down at her, Jesus Christ. She could only hope that Joseph's family would find her first, at least they were half illiterate. With her luck, though, she would be discovered by Walter Jr.'s, and her blabbermouth daughter-in-law would make sure everyone in the family heard about this. That would cinch it. She'd be stranded in purgatory indefinitely for lack of prayers to boost her out. Apricot considered praying, but doubted seriously if God would recognize her voice at this point. Maybe she would do better to call on Mary, as the meticulously dusted statuettes and her belief that any woman could talk any man, divine or not, into anything could attest but she figured the Virgin probably had better things to do than help an old woman who had, moments before, sat brazenly smoking and composing letters to discourage her own children and grandchildren from visiting. She wished she had let Walter Jr. buy her that first alert necklace. She felt suddenly sorry that she had laughed so heartily at the old woman on television who had fallen from her wheelchair and, having had the presence of mind to have ordered the clunky chain-link accessory, praise God, merely pushed a button and was immediately attended to by three broad-chested paramedics who called her miss and smiled at the camera while lifting her onto a stretcher. Slowly, after several minutes spent pondering her woeful situation, Apricot hoisted herself up onto the couch and felt the tightness in her chest pass. She fluffed the floral pillows on either side of her and sank back into the cushions. Her arms felt heavy, and when she first felt the vibration under her palm, she braced herself for another fall. But when she looked down and turned her hand over to examine it, she revealed a forgotten cell phone that was apparently announcing a call by quivering and trembling and scooting around the cushion. Figuring it must have been left by one of her older, overindulged grandchildren, Apricot picked it up and examined the tiny touchpad. She pressed a button with a tiny green phone on it and hoped for the best. Hello, she questioned the tiny phone, which she now held directly in front of her face. She heard a small voice call back. Mom? She put the phone up to her ear and answered. Yes, Abigail, is that you? There was a second or so of silence on the other end, during which Apricot swore she could actually hear the creaky wheels in her daughter's thick skull churning. Oh, Mom, I see. Randy must have forgotten her phone. Oh, man, Mom, I'm surprised you could even figure out how to answer it. Typical. Apricot was about to answer when she decided, fuck it. She was going to go for it. Abigail? Abigail, I fell, Abigail, she moaned into the ridiculous little phone. Mom, are you okay, Abigail answered, suddenly concerned and sounding increasingly fearful. Apricot, feeling a sudden surge of vitality, got up from the couch and began to gather her favorite belongings as she talked to her stunned daughter. Yes, dear, I I feel faint. I think this might be, well, it, sweetie, she continued, stuffing a house dress and some maroon slacks into an overnight bag and tucking the crumpled letters in between her girdle and her favorite floral blouse. "'Mom, I'm going to call an ambulance. Hold on,' Abigail screamed hysterically into the phone. "'No, no, sweetie. I mean, I've already called 911, and the paramedics are on their way. "'Tell the boys to meet me at Daddy's old hospital nursing home. "'Can you do that, honey?' Apricot said, gingerly opening her front door with her foot. "'She turned at the last minute to straighten the orientation of an ottoman "'and switch the television to PBS. "'Then she made her way down the stairs with her bag.' Okay, honey, she continued, I need to rest now. The paramedics will be here any minute. In fact, I think I hear them now. Be a good girl and call Joseph and Walter Jr. And with that, Apricot confidently pushed the button with a picture of the red phone on it without even looking. Outside, the dry, cool air shocked her after the humidified heat of her apartment. She looked up into the dark gray sky and did not miss the stars drowned out by the illuminated city to the east. Apricot planted her bag on the sidewalk next to her, and let her head rock back and her arms hang heavy. She felt as heady as the fine French cheese that was her namesake. All of her life, she'd felt herself pulled this way and that, but now her entire body pointed in the same direction. Hailing a cab with one hand, she deftly used the other to dial Frank Strausshausen. She informed him that there'd be a grand in it for him if he told her children, who without a doubt would take at least an hour to gather themselves and find their way to the hospital a mere two miles away from the farthest sibling that she had passed moments before their arrival and minutes after expressing eloquently her final wishes that her children not be permitted to see her lifeless body. He was to inform them firmly of her wish to be cremated and her ashes, any old vestiges would do, spread by Walter Jr. over the lake at Crown Point, the family vacation destination that he had hated since he was eight the least eloquent and most long-winded of them, as well as the one who knew her least, was to give the eulogy. Frank muttered his agreement, and Apricot asked the driver to stop at an ATM, where she withdrew her balance. And then she ordered him to take her to O'Hare.